Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're really excited because we've got one of our favourite historian authors back on. Who have we got on today, Alex? Oh, so I just wasn't done talking to David Davis about um, the history of the Royal Navy and the periods that he covers. Uh, so he came on to talk to us about Charles II's Navy um, and the restoration and the beginnings of the modern Royal Navy. But... This time, I, we, we have to have a podcast for the Spanish Armada because it is a glorious moment in England's history and I want to celebrate it. So, David, hi. Hello there. Let's just, oh, let's get cracking straight away um, and find out first, why does Spain hate us enough to want to invade in 1588? Okay. Um, the short answer is, of course, that England's become a Protestant nation. It, it's uh, got Elizabeth I um, as its monarch, um, who's taken the country in a more Protestant direction. And Spain is obviously Catholic, regards itself as the great Catholic crusading state. But it's actually much more complicated than that. Um, for one thing, Spain and a lot of English Catholics don't regard Elizabeth as the legitimate monarch. Um, remember that this goes back to Henry VIII and the issue with Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth is obviously Anne Boleyn's daughter. Lots of Catholics and Philip II as well regard Elizabeth as illegitimate um, and had wanted, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots, and then after her execution, another, a different Catholic, perhaps even Philip himself, to be there in charge of her. Arguably even more important than that, though, is that for about 20 years, the Dutch had been in revolt against Philip, who was also their ruler. Um, and by 1585, the English are sending troops, money, supplies to the Dutch rebels. And for Philip, that is really the last straw. I mean, he's had issues for years with the likes of Drake and Hawkins, going out to the Caribbean and attacking his shipping. But what's happening in the Netherlands is much, much more serious as, he's, as far as he's concerned, because, you know, this is, is what he regards as one of his kingdoms. It's in revolt. The English are helping rebels. You've got all the other baggage in there as well. And so it's a culmination of all that that makes Philip decide to 
send the Armada to deal with Elizabeth and these troublesome English once and for all. This must have cost a fortune. How does Philip II fund it and how does it come together? Well, Philip, of course, has got several huge, huge advantages. And the biggest advantage of the lot is that he controls most of North and South America. Um, obviously, an after effect of Columbus and Cortez and all of those sorts of people. Um, but he is drawing from South America the bullion, particularly silver, uh, from the huge uh, Potosi mines down in um, Bolivia. And as a result of that, he is by far the richest monarch in Europe anyway. But he also has then, at the precise time, a couple of years where he's thinking about doing the Armada and getting it together and having this huge invasion force, he's particularly solvent. He's got a particularly um, substantial amount of money because, you know, a couple of commitments that he'd previously had, above all the building of his huge new palace, the Escorial, that's finally finished. That's all paid for. <clears throat> He's got the money uh, to spend on this, which is the exact opposite of Elizabeth. The mid-1580s, Elizabeth is in particularly bad financial straits. El Philip is in particularly good ones. So that explains a lot of what's going on in the planning for and the thinking about the, um, the Armada. How many ships does it comprise? Um, and tell us about the departure of it. Where does it sail from and where is it headed? What's the plan? Okay. Well, the plan <laughs> is a very, very complicated one. The idea is it'll go up through the English Channel and it'll pick up the army of the Duke of Parma. Parma's the general commanding against the rebels. He's in what we now call Belgium. They're going to do that. They've got about 130 ships. Um, they initially assemble in Lisbon. They've moved from there because the, the previous year, Drake had attacked the Armada as it was getting together in Cadiz. So they have it in Lisbon. They then move up to Corunna, and they finally stay, sail from Corunna um, in late July 1588 up towards the English, English coast. But as I say, the, and this will prove to be one of the big problems with the Armada. The plan is incredibly complicated. Um, the Armada will go up there and with 16th century communications it will somehow magically make contact with the general who's in Belgium while they're trying to sail up the channel. Well of course you know this is all very very wishful thinking to say the least and this isn't hindsight. You've got some of Philip's commanders saying to him beforehand, there are all sorts of problems with this. But Philip is so convinced that he is in God's cause, he is right, and therefore there'll be some miracle or other, and it'll all go well, that he won't be swayed. He sticks with it, um, despite all the obvious problems, all the flaws and the shortcomings that are there in the Armada plan. Tell us about the beacons and how does news arrive that the Spanish are going to try and invade Britain? Okay, um, what they'd basically done, and, and this wasn't just because they knew the Spanish were coming this time, this, this went back to the Middle Ages, um, that there was a system of beacons along the, uh, the coast and then going inland to London. Because, I mean, again, 16th century communications, how do you get a message from one place 
to another at a pace that's quicker than, you know, a fast horse? Well, the beacons provide you with the answer in a sense, because what happens is obviously the Armada is sighted off the lizard in southwest Cornwall, um, and then the beacons are lit, and the beacons are within sight of each other. So, of course, as each one is lit, the next one is lit, and so on. The word gets up to London, and then it goes out from there. So when you're talking before, you know, the, uh, the shutter telegraph system that they use in the Napoleonic Wars, clearly you're talking way before internet. But this is actually, in a sense, almost going down the road towards the internet. How do you communicate important information as quickly as you possibly can with the technology of the time? And in 1588, the answer is you stick a blinking great fire on top of a hill and you light that and you hope the next hill along sees it. So it's not very sophisticated by our standards, but actually it is by the standards of the time. Of course, it only really works. It means you can only send one message. You know, everybody must know if the beacons are lit, what that means. So when people see the beacons, they know that the Armada is coming because this, this isn't a surprise. As I say, I mean, you know, they'd been assembling the Armada for two or three years. There'd been an attack the previous year on it as it, as it was forming up. They knew what the Armada was. They knew what its purpose was. They knew it would be coming sometime. So once you see the beacons lit, that's it. Everybody knows the Armada's on its way. Please don't judge me because I'm going to say something. When you were just talking about the beacons, it made me think of Lord of the Rings. Uh, right. going to say that. <laughs> That's where he got it from. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Yeah. Okay, never mind, because that's all that was going through my mind, is watching each beacon being lit as you were talking about the beacons, and I just, it was just, yeah, that was yeah. my image in my mind. It's exactly that dramatic yeah. with the music and probably slightly less um, dramatic landscape, but yeah, yeah, that's where he gets it from. <laughs> exactly, I mean, this is the point, of course, you know, all sorts of writers um, draw their inspiration from history and from real history. I mean, yeah, Tolkien does... Uh, you know, George R. R. Martin with Game of Thrones drew a huge amount of his material from the Wars of the Roses, for example. So it's all, um, you know, everybody's got their sources. Shakespeare had his sources that he was pinching stuff from left, right. And <laughs> so First Blood, what happens? Well, OK, um, what the English have done is they've put most of their fleet down in Plymouth. So once word comes through that the... Armada is coming into the channel. They've got to get out of Plymouth. Because if they're stuck in there, then obviously they, they've got a problem. The wind is contrary. The wind's favouring the Armada. So the fleet under Lord Howard, who's in overall command with Drake as the second in command, they come out of Plymouth and then tack, you know, the sailing manoeuvre, which is the closest you can get a sailing ship to the wind, is to basically zigzag towards the wind. So the English fleet manoeuvres until it can get, get behind the Armada. The Armada's in a kind of a bull's head formation with the horns trailing behind the main part. And so for the first battle of Plymouth, the English just sort of probe away uh, to ch ch check out the strength of 
the defensive horns and they find pretty quickly that well yeah this is this is pretty strong and we certainly don't want to sail in between the horns towards the head because we know we're going to be in trouble if we do so so the first fighting really off Plymouth is quite inconclusive and this then really continues to happen up the channel you get a couple of days of no fighting then there's um some fighting off portland uh where the wind changes so the armada now has the wind behind it the wind starts to come from the east and so the armada tries to attack the english and the english have to get out of of that situation but neither side can gain an advantage because of the tactics they're using what the spanish want to do is to get close to grapple onto the english ships and to board them because the armada has got thousands of soldiers on board it's got about 18,000 soldiers um, and so they know if they can get alongside and board they will win the english know this perfectly well so their tactic is to stand off and use their gunnery to try to batter away at the Spanish ships. But of course, the catch-22 with that is they don't want to get too close. So a lot of the fighting is at too long a range for the English gunnery to be as effective as it might be, um, but it's still too far off for the Spaniards to actually do what they want to do as well. So, you know, they're, they're, they're like boxers. They're circling each other, they're sparring with each other, but neither one can really gain advantage because they've got two totally different fighting styles anyway. And that continues, as I say, for several days up the channel. Didn't the English engage the Spanish again on the 23rd of July, don't they? Yeah. <coughs> what happens is, as I say, you, you go past Portland, there's quite a vicious little fight, or quite a big fight come to that off Portland. Um, and then there's more fighting again off the Isle of Wight. And what's happening off the Isle of Wight is that the English split the fleet, their fleet up into four squadrons. Um, three of them stay quite close inshore. Drake takes a squadron off to the south and then sort of charges up to surprise the Spanish. What are trying to do is to stop the Spanish getting into the Solent. Now, if people who know the area, you, ideally you want to come into the Solent from the east. Um, the western side is half blocked by a huge sandbar which has got Hurst Castle on the end of it and some pretty vicious rocks on the Isle of Wight down at that end. So you've got a much, much bigger entrance to the Solent around the east end. The Armada is trying to get in there. If they can get in there and anchor, they might have a chance to make contact with the digger Palmer and to set up the arrangements for the rendezvous with Palmer's army to bring that army over into invade England. Um, again, the English know this is what they're going to try to do. So what they're trying to do is to stop the Spanish at all costs going into the Solent. And the four-squadron formation with Drake coming in from the south that they adopt is basically to try to press the Spanish in against, there's this big shelf of rocks at the east end of the Isle of Wight called the Owers. They're trying to press them up against that so that the Spanish have only got two, well, they've only got one realistic option. They've got the option of being wrecked, uh, which they're certainly not going to take of choice, and the one of just 
going off to the east. In other words, not attempting to get into the Solent anymore, but simply sailing on. And of course, that is ultimately what happens. So again, you've got some incredibly heavy fighting happening there. So there are really these three big battles in the Channel, of Plymouth, of Portland, then off the Isle of Wight. But the point is that by the end of all those three battles, in a way, the situation hasn't changed very much. The Spanish Armada is still intact. Uh, the English still haven't been able to, del to deliver a decisive blow against it. You know, Palmer's army is still there, waiting for the Armada. So the threat is still very, very real. Yeah, you've eliminated the threat of them coming into the Solent, but the main elements of the problem are still uh, there as far as the English are concerned. Then what happens? Right. Um, I mean, this, this is the point. I mean, it is actually pure Hollywood, the, the whole thing. I mean, it's why it's been, it has been filmed quite a few times, I mean, because, the, you know, the drama in this. <coughs> the, um, <coughs> the Armada goes to Calais, it anchors off Calais. Now, Calais is obviously French. The French aren't involved in the war. They've got their own civil war going on. So the Armada knows they can't stay there very long. The English know the Armada can't stay there very long. Um, but on the other hand, if the Armada can stay at Calais long enough, then they might yet be able to make contact with Palmer. He might be able to come out. So what the English do, of course, of the nights, um, that the, the night after the Spanish anchor at Calais, is that they send in fire ships, eight fire ships, um, which have the desired effect. The Armada, they cut the anchor cables, and they flee off in panic, they break formation, and so forth. Now, it, it, it's interesting with the fire ships. I mean, everybody, you know, in navies in this period knows about fire ships. Fire ships aren't that huge a threat if you know what you're doing and you hold your nerve. Because, yeah, they look scary, but it's actually quite easy because, by definition, they're unmanned after the crews have set the fuses and got off. Um, so they're just really drifting on the wind and tide. So you, you can quite easily get a boat, a pinnace or whatever, get a crew in that, grapple onto the fire ships and just pull them away. The problem the Spanish have got is that a lot of the people in their fleet, a lot of the captains in their fleet, don't think they're fire ships. They think they're what are called hell burners. Now, hell burners have been used against the Spanish three years earlier in the Siege of Antwerp. And these are basically enormous floating bombs. These are pretty much generating the biggest explosions before pretty much the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and, you know, they are colossal things. Um, it would have taken far more gunpowder than Elizabeth I had in the whole of England to send in eight hell burners. But the Spanish don't know that. They, they're thinking that these in eight enormous bombs are sailing straight at them, which, of course, is why you've got so much panic. And the panic is crucial because once they cut their anchor cables, there's almost literally no turning back because, of course, it's then going to be very, very difficult for them to anchor again in a port where they can make contact with Palmer. Uh, what they don't know at the time, of course, is that Palmer isn't ready anyway. It's, still, it's going to take him another week or two to get his army ready to come out. And this is part of the 
the flaw in this incredibly elaborate plan that Philip has devised. So the morning after the fire ship attack, the English attack, and now they've got the measure of the Armada, they know the pros and cons and the strengths and weaknesses of these ships, and now they do come in closer. And now the gunfire, the battering, is much, much more intense. And now the Armada is taking real damage and finally has to break away and sail off into the North Sea. Is this the moment where Elizabeth gives that speech that's gone down in history? Ah, the Tilbury speech, yeah. Um, This is an interesting one. Yeah, she gives the Tilbury speech on basically the same day that the fire ships are sent into attack. Now, so the, the timing is quite tricky in, in, in some respects. You know, you'll see it in um, the film Elizabeth the Golden Age, for example, a Kate Blanchett film, um, where she's giving the, um, the speech and it encourages everybody to go off and smash the Armada and so on. Actually, in many respects, the threat is is largely passed by the time she gives the speech. Um, the thing that's interesting about that as well is, did she say the bit about, you know, the heart and stomach of a king, or didn't she? There are two schools of thought. Um, that, that actual speech in that form isn't written down for 35 years. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think she said it. Um, and the reason is, you know, it, it's the sort of thing she does say. You look at some of Elizabeth's great letters and some of her great speeches. I mean, boy, for a speech. Um, you know, even when she was very old, she delivers this so-called golden speech to Parliament in 1601, when she's a very old woman, only about 18 months or so before she dies. And it's brilliant. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, so, and she writes the poem, of course, after the Armada's been beaten, which is then set to music for the big Thanksgiving service in St. Paul's. And she writes it. Um, there's something like, um, Behold, O God, thy handmaiden, and then so forth. It's, it's fantastic stuff. Um, so I think she did say it. But on the other hand, there, there is a bit of doubt there, but there's certainly no doubt about the timing. In other words, the speech doesn't affect what's going on, the outcome of what's going on, one jot. Um, it's still a brilliant speech. It's an absolutely fantastic speech. Um, but as I say, in terms of context, it's, it's not quite, you know, Churchill, we will fight them on the beaches um, in terms of its timing. Were we making preparations on land just in case? Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, what, why Elizabeth gives the speech in Tilbury is that she's there to address this big army um, which has been assembled there to defend London. Now, clearly, if it's in Tilbury and Essex, there's going to be a problem if the Armada lands in Kent. But they know that. They do have more forces down in Kent, but they've also got a bridge of boats over the Thames between Tilbury and Gravesend, so that if the Armada does land down there, they can get the army over the bridge. But how that would have worked... Who knows? And then, of course, there's the $64,000 question. Well, how would the English army have done against Palmer's army? Because Palmer's army are veterans. You know, they've been, many of them have been fighting the Dutch for many years. They've been fighting the Turks. They've been fighting battles all over the place. These are 
you know, invincible troops. They've got this extraordinary record behind them. And I, I, I think whether Elizabeth really consciously understood that she probably did, I think, that, you know, it did depend on the Navy because if the Spanish landed, then it was probably going to be game over. The English army wasn't really in the same league um, as the Spanish army. So it is really down to the ships and to, you know, the, the, the sailors. What happens to the Spanish Armada? Well, it's a tragic story because they sail off, obviously, up into the North Sea and they know now, I mean, if they turn back, the English are still in the way. They've got this issue about mooring anyway. Um, and so they decide that they are going to continue up round the north of Scotland uh, to aim to return to Spain. And that, of course, is where, in a sense, the, the, the next battle turns in. It's not a battle between ships, it's the battle with the weather. Because off um, the north coast of Scotland and even more so off the west coast of Ireland, they encounter um, storms. Um, many, many ships are driven um, ashore and are wrecked and there are huge casualties. Um, and, you know, the weather and the rocks take out far more of the Armada ships than, the, um, th than English guns do. Um, and in a sense, I mean, I, I've made this point in, in print that it does make uh, everybody thinks the Armada in a way is an English story because, you know, it's an English fleet and so forth that fights the Armada. Well, it is. But in terms of the overall story, it is a British story because you've got such an involvement of the Scottish and Irish coasts. Um, most of the wrecks, the really good wrecks that have been found, are off those coasts. Um, I mean, the, and there's, there's one... Um, particularly interesting story one of the galleons puts into Tobermory um, on the on, on the west coast of Scotland on, on Mull and basically um, so it's lying there obviously Scotland independent country at the time is neutral but even so there are plenty of people who are sympathetic to um, to England and basically what an English spy gets on this Spanish ship and blows it up so, one and ever since then, there's been this great legend of the treasure in uh, Tobermory Harbour, which lots of people have tried to find over the years and never succeeded in finding. But uh, it's all <laughs> everyone's going to go diving now after this is over. There's all sorts yeah. of uh, Spaniards washing up on coastlines, aren't there, and settling in weird places like far-flung corners of Scotland, um, and just sort of then people like getting married and having kids and Spanish names appearing in the record. Yeah, well, exactly. I, mean, I, I love the, um, the Shetland TV series, um, and which is based on a series of books. Obviously, the central character in that is called Jimmy Perez. Mm -hmm. So he's meant to be from an Armada survivor. Um, and actually, one of the Spanish ships was wrecked on Fair Isle between Orkney and Shetland. And the ship was called the Grand Griffon, the Great Griffin. And to this day on Fair Isle sweaters, the, the genuine Fair Isle sweaters, one of the main symbols they put on those is the Griffin. Um, on the island of Westry in, um, in Orkney, for a couple of hundred years, there was, there was a set of people called the Westry Dons who were meant to be sort of very dark-haired and so on, and of Spanish descent. And there's a similar story in the 
west of Ireland, you know, so Spanish, of, of Spanish survivors, as you say, who've intermarried um, and uh, have created these new dynasties um, in these places. So there are some fascinating local stories as you go round the coast of the British Isles. Um, and it's amazing what you find, because a lot of the time the national histories ignore these. But I mean, I've been up to Orkney, for example, quite a lot. And, and you, fast, you find some fascinating little local legends and ideas and so on up in these places. And obviously with my um, writer hat on, I can sometimes get some of these into some of my books. And uh, yeah, it, there are a tremendous number of uh, things you can pick. How many Spaniards died when the ships were wrecked? We're not sure of exact numbers. I mean, for example, the, um, when the Galeas Girona is wrecked, um, right next to the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland in October, she had taken on survivors from about three or four other Armada ships that were no longer seaworthy. So we know there must have been over a thousand people crammed into this ship, which normally had a crew of, you know, a couple of hundred or, or whatever it was, um, maybe 1,500. There were nine survivors from the wreck of the Girona. Um, so we're clearly talking, you know, catastrophic losses. We know that um, about 36 ships of the Spanish Armada are lost out of the 130 that set off. So it's roughly a 25% attrition rate of the ships. Now, <coughs> it may well have been a higher attrition rate of the, of the manpower. So you're talking quite a few thousand men. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's a bit of a hollow victory for the English sailors, isn't it? What happens to them? Yeah, in all sorts of ways, because um, for one thing, well, this affected both fleets. There's been a huge amount of disease um, that has swept through the fleet. I mean, dysentery above, above all, which is always a huge issue on wooden sailing ships. Um, and yeah, I mean, the English really suffer very, very badly from this. I mean, again, in terms of the total numbers, you know, you'll sometimes hear the number of 6,000 mentioned for the numbers who die on the English fleet. Well, that's probably about the total number we're on it, which is crazy. Um, maybe a third of the, uh, to a half, so two to 3,000 do die. And the ones who survive then have huge problems because 
the government has basically run out of money. I said it didn't have much money to start with, and um, Lord Burley, the Lord Treasurer, Elizabeth's Chief Minister, does make this incredibly callous comment when he, you know, it comes through about the men who are dying on the ships and so forth, that uh, basically the more of them who die, the better, because they'll reduce the wage bill. And so when the ship's coming back into port, yeah, I know, nice guy. Uh, when the ships come back into port, um, they're not paid. And partly as a result of that, the likes of Drake and Hawkins and so on, the, the men who commanded these poor sailors, they decide, right, if the Treasury's not going to act, we need to act ourselves on this. So they set up this uh, fund called the Chatham Chest, where there's a compulsory deduction from seamen's wages from then on, and that's paid into what was initially literally an oak chest kept in Chatham Dockyard. You can see it. It's on display down there. Um, and that then becomes a kind of a benevolent fund for the Navy for the next couple of hundred years. You know, it's a very, very major um, institution. Touched on this, but what did Britain gain from the failure of the Spanish Armada? Well, arguably the fact that we're not spe speaking Spanish. <laughs> that that, <laughs> that, um, that was the thing in the short term because clearly if the Armada had succeeded then that was a possibility um, Elizabeth would certainly have been overthrown Philip would probably have installed his daughter as a puppet monarch um, certainly the religion would have been turned back to Catholic again um, so you know this was clearly um, massively important in that negative sense that these things didn't happen. In the longer term, of course, it, it becomes one of the great foundation myths, if you like, of the, the British Empire, because, you know, this whole thing of God blew when they were scattered, which Elizabeth has stamped on the medals, this becomes the great legend that God had been on England's side, it was a Protestant wind that destroys the Armada, so it really reinforces that sense of national self-image. Um, there's a huge set of tapestries which are created displaying the events of the Armada campaign, which are put up in the House of Lords. And until they're destroyed in the fire of 1834, I mean, these are regarded as absolutely iconic. They're referred to by statesmen who, you know, in the, against Napoleon and so on, will point to them and say, right, this is the example, This this is what we want to be like. So it put, the Armada goes right up there, you know, in terms of the iconic, defining moments of certainly English national identity, subsequently British national identity. Um, this is one, because um, then, of course, you've got Trafalgar, you've got 1940, and these are following on in the same vein. This idea of the, the plucky little underdog, um, you know, bringing down the, the Spanish is not true, of course, because the, the English fleet weren't the underdogs. I mean, they, they had big, actually bigger ships, better gun, guns and better tactics and, 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 and so on. But um, it, it suits, you know, the, the sort of national mythology to keep that, that myth in there. Drake didn't play bowls either, by the way. Sorry about that. Got a, oh, a, no, I like that one. Yeah, sorry. Oh. It's a story. Story's not um, certainly until 150 <laughs> years later. Um, it, it, it's probably created by a guy who was said to be um, 
um, often not sober um, by lunchtime and never sober by suppertime. Um, and he's probably the guy who creates the story of the bowls. But um, there we it are. Sounds like me under lockdown. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're, we're, we're bad people, historians. You know, we, we, we take apart all these myths and uh, make things <laughs> bad. We destroy people's hopes and dreams as well sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that as well, yeah. Quite. <laughs> but David, thank you so much for joining us and talking about the Spanish Armada, uh, about what happened to the Spanish Armada, because not even I knew that. I just thought they carried on and went safely back to Spain and I didn't know that they ended up in Scotland and ships were completely destroyed. Thank you for educating us this, uh, this afternoon. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. And just quickly, tell everyone about your new trilogy about Jack Stannard, because if they're interested in the uh, Tudor Navy, it's for them, isn't it? Um, well, the third book, which has just gone off the publishers, coming out in August, called Amada's Wake, so quick plug for that. That covers pretty much what we've been talking about today. But what I did with it was I took a 40-year period, three books, three generations of the same family, so the first book, Destiny's Tide, for example, culminates in the sinking of the Mary Rose um, in 1544. Um, sorry, 1545. And you've got then the second one is Drake and Hawkins in the Caribbean in 1568. And the third one's the Armada. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, again, surprisingly little um, of Tudor naval history appears in fiction, uh, which you'd think would be, would be a lot more, really, but there isn't. So it was an attempt to rectify that in a way, but it, it was great fun, really, because I mean, I'd, I'd uh, you know, not uh, touched on the Armada for a while, but it was good to unpick all this, uh, all this again. Well, we're glad you did. Um, thanks very much for joining us. No problem. Join us tomorrow when we will be learning all about Vietnam prior to the Vietnam War. So we're going to be talking more France and French colonialism. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.